The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. This Saturday, the, the meditation and yoga workshop is a uh, return for, for Lali and I. We taught this about a year ago. And uh, for those of you who don't know Lali, she is a delightful um, woman, practitioner. Uh, she was one of the first um, of the first wave of yoga students um, in the 60s and 70s who studied with BKS Iyengar, went to India, and then brought the practice of yoga and taught for many years in, in Palo Alto and around here. And, um, and I think she's 86 or 87 or something. And it's an amazing, you know, just, uh, she credits it to yoga. <laughs> and so whenever we meet to talk, like, you know, we met, I met at her house to talk about the, our class that we're going to do. And it's, I always get this great workout. <laughs> she just puts me through everything she's going to be teaching. So, um, it's very sweet, so looking forward to that. Um, and so, so last week, we talked a little bit about, or a lot about, um, the quality of relaxation, of, of, of the value of relaxation, the benefits of relaxation, how through relaxing the body, there can be a way that the mind relaxes, the mind releases, the heart releases. And that that is very supportive of the shift in perspective that Dharma practice um, encourages, you know, from a, from a very fixed view of me and the world to something that's more, you know, that's, that's, uh, not so, not so um, rigid. That, and the the less tension there is, the less clinging there is, it, the the less self there is, in, in the sense of self as a contraction, self as this um, movement of contraction. Um, And so one of the extensions of that or the corollary of that is the less, the less tension, the less clinging, the less contraction, the less self there is, the more, um, the more love can, can kind of shine through, shine through us in this sense of love as, um, quality of the heart, a quality of the mind that um, that, that, that somehow is, is um, you know, maybe is inherent to who we are, maybe, you know, and maybe there are um, 
there are ways that we block this. And so part of the movement of practice is um, just allowing those barriers to love, to be seen, to be understood, and to be, to be released, to be dissolved. Um, it is Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Yeah. So I, th- I thought maybe it's nice to say a few words about um, a dharma, you know, one dharma understanding of love. Um, one of the one of the teachers of our teachers, kind of the revered elders. Um, of, of this tradition and a woman who is considered um, a, a master of meditation and a master of Dharma practice in a, in a very special way was a woman called Deepama. You might have heard of her. She was um, an Indian woman who came to meditation practice in middle age or in late middle age um, when she was living in Burma. And she had had somewhat of a difficult life. Um, And in the span of a few short years, she had, her husband had died, and then one of her daughters had died. And she was heartbroken. And basically um, was in a deep depression and went to the meditation center as sort of a last, you know, last, uh, last-ditch effort. Um, and on her first meditation retreat, she talked about how she was walking across the courtyard. And, and this is, just to give a little bit of context, this is in Burma. And I believe this was at the Mahasi Center and the Mahasi style of, of, of Vipassana practice. And this style of practice is um, the instructions are to walk very slowly and to be very mindful. When you're sitting, to be mindful of the rising and falling of the belly. When you walk, just to be mindful of the feet stepping. So it's this very close, very careful, somewhat strict you know, compared to what, what we do on retreat, somewhat strict um, way of practice. And so in the middle of her retreat, she was walking across the courtyard and then suddenly she stopped. But she didn't know why she had stopped and she just couldn't go anymore. And then at some point she realized that there was a dog down there that had <laughs> clamped its teeth around her legs or her leg. But she was so deep in the meditation, she was so deep in her concentration in a samadhi that she couldn't feel. <laughs> she couldn't feel the dog, the dog biting her. This is just one example of just this sort of extraordinary um, aptitude for meditation and for concentration that she that she had, you know, um, just on her first retreat, and she very quickly you know, went through 
um, the meditation practice and then became a teacher herself. And her, her teacher talked about how Deepama was more advanced than he was. And so he would just teach her out of these meditation, these old meditation manuals, and she could just do these things that he couldn't do. So anyway, so she was just, that's all that to say that she was a very special uh, practitioner and meditator. And she was once asked by one of our Western teachers who was, who was studying with her, what's in your mind right now? What is your mind like? And she said, oh, there's, there are only three things in my mind. Concentration, peace, and metta, and love. And so there's something about metta. Something metta is one of one of the words, maybe the closest word in the the language the the language of Pali, the language of the Buddhist teachings that translates as love. Um, but there's something about metta that is. Uh, very much the nature of this practice, or very much the fruits of this practice. Um, so I wanted to say a little bit about some ways that um, meditation practice um, is a practice of love, or some, you know, what are, what are the things we can learn about metta, about love, through meditation practice. Um, metta, you've probably heard that word before, or it's um, uh, usually translated as loving kindness. Um, sometimes it's translated as kindness, friendliness. Um, it has this quality of softness, of openness. Um, maybe we can say that it has a quality of unconditional love. Um, in the Dharma teachings about love, metta is often grouped with these other flavors of love, which are compassion, um, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. The way I think about it is if metta is love, then when love meets suffering, when love meets difficulty, when love meets pain, it becomes compassion. You know, so that's one flavor of love. And then um, on the other side, when love meets joy, when love meets happiness, when love meets... Um, the good things that happen to others, it can become this uh, sympathetic joy, this empathetic joy. You know, we're happy for others. And then equanimity is this, this, this uh, flavor of mind that has to do with the ups and downs of life. 
you know, and the and the somewhat the not knowing, um, you know, the the just not knowing how things are going to be, the 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 nature, the contingent, impermanent nature of things, um, can be very unsettling. Um, when we really take in this this um, this truth that we don't know, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, and so, when love meets this uncertainty or this fear, then it can become equanimity. Equanimity is this uh, place of balance. Um, so that's nice, isn't it? You know, it's like love has these different flavors. And um, one of the, there are a few things I wanted to read. This is a poem, I think it's Hafiz. It's called, It Felt Love. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. This is called It Felt Love. And, and one of the, one of the, one of the uh, ways I appreciate this idea is that um, all of us who are here have in some way in our life um, experienced love. You know, we've... Um, sometimes it's said that the inspiration to practice dharma, to practice meditation, is itself... It's an enlightened inspiration. It's an enlightened activity. It's like, this is where we start, you know. It's like love has somehow brought us here. Um, and one of the, one of the, um, you know, so, so love has brought us here and um, in some way, um, we've we've been loved into existence, and um, I say that also with an awareness that many of us have difficulties around. You know, it might be around the idea of love, it might have been around the expression of love, the way we've. Um, maybe weren't loved in the way that we could have been or had hoped, hoped to be. 
Um, and, you know, so this is all in the mix. It's all, you know, um, so, so, so there's something about um, love that brings us to practice. You know, even if we maybe are not so in touch with it when we sit down to practice, maybe there's something about love that brings us to practice. And then one of the offerings of, of Dharma practice is um, love as a practice itself, love as, as a sort of implicit and explicit practice. You know, implicit, I would say, maybe we can say love is closely connected to mindfulness, to this act of giving our attention, giving our awareness to something. Children maybe know they're loved by the, the attention we give to them, the way we see them. Um, and I, even though sometimes I find it a little bit um, Irritating. I don't know if that's the word. Uh, I want to use the word around my children and, and this topic, but there's a way that, um, especially my three-year-old, when she wants to get our attention, she just, she just goes for it, you know. And I could be on the phone, or I could be talking to someone, and you know, first it was like Papa, you know, and Papa, 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 Papa. <laughs> you know, and this sort of um, she, you know, she's not socialized into necessarily the ways of, of manners and things that we're, you know, that's what we work with her on. But something more fundamental is like she's she's demanding the love that she needs. You know, she's sort of asserting. I need this, give this to me now. You know, I need your attention. I need your, um, I need your care. I need to be seen right now. And, um, and she has some expectation that that's going to be met. So, you know, that's um, good, I think. <laughs> um, even in the moment, it can be um, a lot. Um, so, so, in this practice, maybe there's, a, there's an implicit way that by what we give our attention to, we're giving our love to. By what we give our, our, our care, our warmth to, by what we see, by what we know, um, we're in some way infusing that with love. But it can be that. You know, when, when there's some sense of ease, some sense of calm, when the mind is not so entangled and caught up, we can start to feel that more and more, this basic unity of like, as Deepama was saying, you know, there's concentration, there's mindfulness, and there's love. You know, those are the things that are in my mind. Um, and then, what, one of the very sweet things about this particular style of, of meditation practice, or this particular stream of Buddhism is that there are explicit, you know, if, if just being mindful, just being aware, just seeing everything inside and everything we meet, you know, 
if there's a, if there's a way that that's, that's like loving everything, to see is to love or to, to accept everything is to love everything. There are also, there's an explicit practice of metta, of love. Um, and I thought just to read, just to read what the Buddha said about this, because it's, you know, it's, it's really front and center in the teachings of the Buddha. It's not an aside. It's not a, um, it's not only the byproduct or the fruit of a lifetime of practice. Then I can love people. You know, it's right there at the beginning. So this is the Metta Sutta. To reach the state of peace, one skilled in the good should be capable and upright, straightforward and easy to speak to, gentle and not proud, contented and easily supported, living lightly and with few duties, wise and with senses calmed, not arrogant and without greed for supporters, and should not do the least thing that the wise would criticize. One should reflect, may all be happy and secure. May all beings be happy at heart. All living beings, whether weak or strong, tall, large, medium or short, tiny or big, seen or unseen, near or distant, born or to be born, May they all be happy. Let no one deceive another or despise anyone anywhere. Let no one through anger or aversion wish for others to suffer. As a mother would risk her own life to protect her child, her only child, so toward all beings should one cultivate a boundless heart. With love for the whole world should one count should one cultivate a boundless heart, above, below, and all around, without obstruction, without hate, standing, walking, sitting, or lying down. Whenever one is awake, may one stay with this recollection. This is called a sublime abiding here and now. One who is virtuous, endowed with vision, not taken by views, having overcome all greed for sensual pleasure, will be freed from birth and death. So one of the one of the interesting things to me about this is it's proposing a practice, proposing a practice of of recollecting, of wishing, of sort of setting the heart's intention for for care, for love, for the well-being of others, of, for, for, for all beings. Um, and it's one of the very nice things, one of the thing, one of the, um, one of the ways that I've seen this work in meditation practice, and especially on meditation retreats, is when I or, or someone is encountering difficult emotions or difficult, you know, whether there's a lot of um, anger coming up, 
a lot of fear, a lot of sadness, or anxiety, or grief, or all the just the difficult things that a human life produces. One of the most powerful antidotes is metta, is love. And there's a way that um, in just that it's, it's not so much that this is a feeling, that there's a right feeling of metta, you know, to get, get into this state of love or get into this feeling, that it's really this intention. It's really just inclining the mind, inclining the heart to have this wish that's oriented outwards. Um, it includes ourselves. You know, all beings includes ourselves. Um, but there's something, there's something magical about, you know, that metta, that love can't exist. It occupies the same, maybe the same sort of territory in our being as some of these more clo- closing, contracted emotions. So um, it's something just to, to try to just drop in this intention, this wish, when we feel our world and our self is, is closed and small and contracted and, and in pain. Ah, you know, may all beings be safe. May, may all beings be happy. And it's, it's this, it can be this wonderful antidote. And then if we, if we practice just bringing up this intention, it could be before meditation sitting or afterwards, it could be before we go to bed at night, um, just to see what the effects are. I found when I started doing this before I fell asleep, um, it really seemed to change the quality of my sleep, of the, of the way something could rest, the way something could relax and be at ease and let go just to put this wish out there, drop it into the heart. Um, One of the interesting things about metta practice, about this practice of loving kindness, is that traditionally there's a a sort of progression. So if if one is practicing this on a retreat or in in a sort of intensive way, we first start with sending love to ourselves, you know, and, and this was a little bit surprising for me when I first heard this teaching, you know, it's the first, you know, the practice of metta starts with ourselves, starts with giving love to ourselves. And I thought, well, you know, that seems a little selfish or a little self, you know, kind of, I don't know. Um, and oh, over time, I've come to see the wisdom of this, of, you know, I mean, I think it's something that we know intuitively that it's really difficult to love others if we don't love ourselves, you know. And when we can appreciate ourselves, accept ourselves for as we are, um, have compassion for ourselves, then we can meet others, you know, with, you know, it's it's easier to sort of we to um, let others in. Um, what people have 
have noticed, and I don't know if this is just a modern thing or if this is something in our country or in the West, but sending metta, sending love for oneself is often one of the most difficult. You know, that, so, the, so the way the practice goes is there's, we, we send love to ourselves and then it's like moving out wider and wider in, in you know, the, widening the circle. So the next target of our love, object of our love, <laughs> recipient of our love is what's classically called the benefactor. You know, a person who we have uncomplicated feelings of positive regard towards. You know, um, it's, I think in the literature, it's, it's, suggest, it's suggested, you know, as a parent, although often we have complicated relationships with our parents. So maybe it's a grandparent, or maybe it's a teacher, or a beloved friend, or someone who has supported us in our life and given us this, you know, the, the light, the warmth that we've needed to blossom. Um, so this sending love to oneself and love to the benefactor. Um, some people find that it's easier to start with the benefactor, that it's actually our relationship with ourselves is complicated. And, you know, if I feel in some ways unworthy of love or, um, you know, um, have complicated feelings about myself, um, sometimes it's easier to start with a benefactor and start with, start with someone who there's, or I don't know how, how kosher this is in the tradition, but maybe it's, maybe it's a pet. Maybe it's a faithful dog that who we, we have totally unconditional love for and we have totally uncomplicated feelings for this being, you know, and, and this is a way of practicing this of practicing just this sending this love. And we can imagine this being sending love back to us. You know, and maybe from that, it gives us this this sort of taste of this, which we can then give to ourselves. Um, So there's love for oneself, love for the benefactor, friend, sometimes they say love for the friend. And then the third one is um, sometimes it's translated as love for the d- a difficult person, a difficult person in our life. Sometimes it's translated as an enemy. I don't, that's little. Um, but uh, there can, it's, you know, again, this is, can be such a powerful practice. And it's, it's not about feeling a right way or the way we're supposed to feel about someone difficult, but it's this intention. It's this sort of inclining, inclining the being towards softening around a person who may be difficult in our life. And just to, without even interacting with that person, it's possible to discover that our relationship with the difficult person begins to change. How we see the person begins to change. And it's amazing. It's really amazing. Um, Often people find this practice very helpful on meditation retreats that are silent, 
when, when you're on a, a silent retreat, even if it's for a weekend or for a week or for a few weeks, we're still relating to other people. We still have these almost sort of imaginary relationships with other people. And it may be someone who inadvertently bumped you in the line or there's just something they do that you find really difficult, you know, in some way. Or, or you had an exchange with them before the retreat started that was difficult. Or, um, and somehow over this silent retreat where we're meant to be here and radiating love and <laughs> they become an enemy. <laughs> and, you know, and so the practice of sending them love, sending them well wishes can be amazingly powerful in how it changes us. You know, it's not about them. It's about changing our relationship to them. Um, you know, what, what is it to send love to difficult, I mean, so it could be a difficult person in our life. It could be a difficult person in the news, you know, maybe. What is <laughs> maybe that person deep down just wants to be loved, you know, just wants to be appreciated, respected, and somehow it's all you know, tangled up in all this other stuff. And um, I don't know. Um, so love for oneself, love for uh, our friend, our benefactor, love for a difficult person. And then it's like love for all beings, you know, and, and it's just getting wider and wider and wider. Um, so, so this very sweet practice of love has as something that we can drop into our own heart and that can somehow soften how we see the world, how we experience the world, how we experience ourselves. Um, and then I mean I said this a little bit before, but one of the one of the benefits of this practice of of implicitly and explicitly calling up love is we start to notice the obstacles to love. We start to notice the places in the heart that are holding, that resist, that say, no, I can't love this person, you know, um, or I can't fully love myself because of X, Y, Z. And just to notice that, just to notice the places of, of, um, you know, where, where it seems that love can't, you know, the, the crevices, the corners of the heart where the light of love can't fully reach. And, and so then when we notice this, when we notice resistance to love, we meet that resistance as much as we can with love kindness, with care, you know, rather than, oh, you know, I can't even, I can't even love in the right way, or I can't even, you know, um, trying to hold whatever comes up, whatever, whatever uh, barriers um, to love with care, with kindness, with compassion, 
Um, and trusting, trusting that over time, you know, what needs to happen will happen, what needs to melt, what needs to dissolve. It's like the heat, mindfulness, awareness, metta practice, love, is like the heat that's melting all the frozen spots inside of us. And just to, just to trust that that process, that being out in the sun, um, it really works. We don't have to figure it out. We don't have to kind of force it to happen. Um, I made the mistake of leaving one of my cars, a minivan, in a very shaded spot during the, during the rains of the last months. And then when I came back, did I talk about this before? When I came back to <laughs> pick up my car in Los Altos, and, I, and it was filled with mold. I couldn't believe it. I thought, oh my God, you know, and the child seats were covered in mold, and this, and I thought, oh. And it was like the combination of the sort of relentless rains and just the moisture, the wetness. And then there wasn't much sun. And then the car was parked in a way where it wasn't getting sun anyway. And so this, you know, it didn't have the chance to sort of just dry out, um, clean out, purify. And so it just kind of, anyway. So, we can get a little moldy, <laughs> you know, and, and this practice is like the sunlight. This is like opening all the windows, all the doors, and, and letting, letting this, you know, um, letting the encouragement of light, as they said, you know, be felt against our being. Um, and it shows us where the barriers are. It shows us where um, just, just intending to send love to someone who's difficult immediately shows us, oh, this is, this is where the heart is holding on in some way. And it's great. It's a great information for us. Um, I also just wanted to say one thing about love and attachment which is one of the most difficult, maybe one of the most difficult things with our loved ones or with our children or with our partners or um, how do we, is it possible to love someone without being attached to that person? I remember when I um, had my first child, one of my meditation teachers, Jack Cornfield, who you, you, you probably know, um, he, he turned to me and said something like, with a knowing smile, he said, now you will really understand attachment. <laughs> you know, and um, this is, I think this is one of the koans from my own practice, one of the riddles. What is it to love without attachment? What is it to, um, you know, when we love someone, we... First of all, we're partial to them, you know. So is that the same thing as this metta, is this pure love for all beings? Well, yes and no. I mean, there's probably, there's probably some ways it's similar, in some ways it's different. 
one of the clearest ways that I understand this question of love and attachment is this very simple understanding of love. Love says, I want you to be happy. Attachment says, I want you to make me happy. <laughs> so I want you to be happy versus I want you to make me happy. And uh, so for most of us, it is a mix, you know, um, and it's complicated, it's complicated. One of the other really nice teachings that I had heard indirectly from a Zen, a Zen, a Japanese Zen teacher who was asked about specifically dealing with children, love and attachment and children. And he said, um, build a wall of love around your children. And then when they can climb over the wall, let them go. When they climb over the wall, let them go. Oh, that's, that's a nice, um, somehow it, what I like about that is it acknowledges this natural, we want to make a wall around our loved ones. We want them to be safe. We want them, we want to protect them. And part of the reason we want them to be safe is they're so around, they're around for us and so we can love them and so we don't have to miss them. And, and, and then, but a part of love is also letting go when it's time to let go and, and, and when it's healthy to let go. Um, so, I guess the final thing I wanted to say is one of the ways that this practice of love and this practice of practicing on ourselves, practicing on the friend, the difficult person, the neutral person. Oh, that's another one. I forgot about that one, the neutral person. <laughs> so sending love to the person who we don't, you know, we don't have any particular feelings about either way. And then, you know, to, and to all beings. Part, maybe part of the way, reason we practice on these, these particular beings, these particular objects, is to start to understand what it might be like to have a love that has no object. You know, um, what does that even mean, to have a love that has no object, that a... Uh, to love before there's even something or someone to love, you know. Um, of course, there's a Rumi poem <laughs> called Love with No Object. Um, there is a way of loving not attached to what is loved. Observe how water is with the ground, always moving towards the ocean. Though the ground tries to hold the water's foot and not let go. This is how we are. With wine and beautiful food, wealth and power, or even just a dry piece of bread. We want and we get drunk with wanting. And then the headache and bitterness afterward. These prove that the attachment took hold and held us back. 
A love with no object is a true love. All else shadow without substance. Leave partial loves and find one that's whole. Where is someone who can do that? They're so rare, those hearts that carry the blessing and lavish it over everything. To carry the blessing, lavish it over everything. It reminds me of this uh, Suzuki Roshi teaching, to be grateful before we have something, you know, rather than a kind of love that's transactional. What is it to just, you know, to be, to be in a space where everything, you know, it's, each movement of mind is love. Each, everything we see is love. There, you know, there's nothing that's outside of our love. Thank you very much on this Valentine's Day, love, love day. I wish to send you a lot of love and um, something this world needs more of, you know. And so I feel so fortunate that we have this practice that um, it's a practice of love. It's a, you know, it's it's a way of um, relating to ourselves and to, to... to the world that we can we can cultivate and good things will happen from that so thank you i don't know if there's any if anyone has wants to say something or a question or we have a few minutes um, share what 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 you've discovered about love the line in the Joan Baez song, um, Love Song to a Stranger, I think it is. Because um, if I, if love means loving, expecting nothing in return, I'll need a, a whole nother lifetime to learn. <laughs> <laughs> if love means expecting nothing in return, I'll live, yeah. Yeah. So it, yeah. it it is a hard one for me in relationship. Um, I've grown and grown and grown and grown at that, but um, but it comes up. The the three year old comes up at the most surprising moments, and there it is. And um, lately, I just I feel kind of like. When that happens, I don't act in a lot of ways that I used to. Um, but it's such an emotional um, 
so toxic. So I, I end up feeling a little, um, oh, it's thrown off. Mm-hmm. And it feels really hard to get back to a place of openness to self. I feel a lot of shame and regret for the wasted time. Because <laughs> love isn't happening when that's happening. Right, right. As much as I'm wanting it in that moment, I'm not letting it happen. If, you, if your daughter's there going, Papa, 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 she's not feeling loved, right? Right, she's right, right. caught up in the Papa, Papa, Papa. <laughs> right, right, right. So it's, uh, uh, I don't know how many times. I mean, it, I can go on for weeks, maybe even months, but then it's just this blast. Yeah. I guess all I can do, I mean, at that time, I don't know what to do at that time sometimes. I just wait. Because in a way, the capacity to um, to repair that myself while I'm still in the fallout feels fractured, or my ability to be mindful or connected to oneness feels fractured. I don't know if you have any yeah. advice. Well, it's a great. I mean, I think we can all relate to that, and this is a great observation of how. In the wanting, the very thing we want <laughs> gets blocked, you know, and that's the painful irony of, um, of, of, of this whole, you know, of, you know, and, it, and it's, it's often our conditioning around um, if love is this openness, when we close down and when we um, around wanting that, you know, wanting that, you know, whatever it is to be appreciated, to be seen, to be, we're blocking the very thing we need. And in those moments when that, you know, I find the most, um, sometimes the most helpful way to to let love in the side door is to um, see if we can bring up some, some, some care, some kindness, compassion, for this very pain, you know? And that's, you know, in thinking that, oh, it's, it's this thing out there, we're not seeing how very close it can be when we, and as soon as we, it's like it almost can be, you know, once you kind of get very practiced in that, it can be this sort of like just this, oh yeah, this remembering and this softening just opens that, you know, of... Um, but the kindness towards the pain around it is um, one of my teachers says about compassion, especially self compassion he says he says it 's the only thing that works <laughs> you know you try you try everything else, but it 's really the only thing that works and when we when we genuinely you know um, open to it and accept it you know often there can be we can think we're accepting something but really there's a lot of resistance to it there's a lot of resistance to feeling that way there's a lot of resistance to, and so we can kind of go through the motion of okay i accept it i accept it i accept you know but um it seems that only when we when we one teacher I have, he talks about how he found that 
one easy check to see, am I really accepting this or am I sort of partially accepting it? It was like, it was just this mental exercise. If, if, if I'm this way for the rest of my life, it's totally fine, I'm totally okay. And then when he said it, he was like, no, <laughs> this is not okay. There was this acceptance with this eye towards the acceptance will make it go away. And, you know, and so we just see it. We just notice all these different ways that, you know, and when it's genuinely okay, somehow that can, so something can be released to that. So it's, but I, but I think is the other way I think about it is that just bringing love into whatever, whatever can accept our love. So if it's not, you know, you know, if it's, not the, if it's not myself in the moment, if it's not that, that person or that, is it the difficult, is it the difficulty? Or if it's not the difficulty, is it the pain of not being able to accept the difficulty? Maybe it's that pain, or maybe it's, you know, or maybe it's just the, you know, the, the pain around, the, you know, just keep getting, zooming out um, until there's a place where, where that acceptance or that love can land. Um, but it's a great, I mean, it's a great, and just practicing with that, I think um, good things will, good things will happen. But thank you. You want to take the mic? Yeah. My 20, at the time, my 22-year-old child was studying abroad in, in Florence, and then afterwards he was going to be backpacking for several Eastern European countries, and he wrote to me and, and after he finished with his studies, and he said, uh, you know, Mom, I'm terrified. And, um, you know, I, I emailed him back immediately and um, said that um, that wasn't certainly the experience I'd hoped for him as he was starting his journey to the different hostels, and uh, that once um, he got to the hostels with other young men and women, that hopefully he, he would feel much better. And that, uh, you know, I hope that uh, he wouldn't be suffering for too long. But, you know, apart, and that's how I felt. And was I ever even going to see my son again? And then I thought, well, you know, I should be running to Europe. Or I should be doing something. <laughs> my child is, is terrified. And um, I just kept uh, sending him uh, loving kindness and hoping that he wouldn't suffer for too long. And then I thought, no, that's not enough. I should be... Uh, <laughs> but uh, but as, as a matter of fact, uh, his dad, my, my ex-husband, um, uh, I told him that Jonathan was at, at that time experiencing some fear. He was, you know, planning... A, he was planning... Um, an air airfare to get there as quickly <laughs> But not me. I was just um, wanting him not to suffer for too long. Mm. And that, did it did it work out okay? Yes, within mm. you know a day or two, he was in hostels and he was being welcomed. And huh. Yeah, yeah. No, I. I think we can all you know that movement. Uh, we want to make it okay, and we want to. And how much is 
you know, it's like that building that wall of love and how much of it is at a certain point, children, we need that wall, we need that protection at a certain point. It's not, you know, maybe it's, you know, like the immune system, it needs to have challenges in order to, to, to be trained. Otherwise it overreacts. You know, um, I, I toured a school recently and it was, it was this sweet, wonderful school. And they were talking about how devastated a lot of the children were about the elections. And this is a school that goes like K to eight. So there's certainly, you know, at a certain point they're, they're aware of current events and they're involved and they're, and they were, they were really crushed, really heartbroken. And then I thought about how, oh, I've, I've carefully shielded my children from even any image of, <laughs> that. I mean, they're young, they're younger. Um, but then I thought, well, how, you know, when is it appropriate to be, to not, to be, have that bubble of protection and not need to know anything? And then when is it, you know, when is it a, a really a learning experience? And to, and to go, and she said it was one of the great things, you know, to, to, to process all of this and go through the emotions and talk about democracy and talk about activism. And, you know, so, so hopefully it, it was a way, um, it was a, in some probably was a shock for some of the, you know, whatever, but it was a, um, ultimately it was good, you know, to, to, to go through these difficulties and, and learn that it, we can survive that. We, you know, there, there can be terror and uh, fear at the unknown. And if we, if we, if we kind of stay with it and we're sensible and we can, we can get through it and it will change and it will. So uh, thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much. Uh,